Hello, listeners. As you know, Animal Justice makes the Paw and Order podcast possible. On September 22nd, we're launching our first ever crowd fundraising campaign, Voiceless for Animal Justice, which is a three-week effort to raise awareness about the animals who have no voices of their own in our legal systems, and more importantly, to raise funds in support of our critical work to protect animals from cruelty and abuse. Voiceless for Animal Justice will culminate in a day of silence on October 13th, when we'll all pledge not to speak for an entire day in solidarity with the animals who are so often silenced. So on September 22nd, please check out our website, animaljustice.ca, to participate. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Everybody, it's time for another episode of Paw and Order, and it's Peter Sankoff here with my co-host, the award-winning, the award-winning Camille Labchuk. Camille, I'm honored to be in your presence today on the podcast. Well, thanks, Peter. You really should be because, as you mentioned, I'm now an award winner. <laughs> award-winning Camille Labchuk. It is. It is fantastic. Seriously, Camille, congratulations on winning the Lisa Grill Compassion Award over two very worthy contenders. Well, thanks, Peter. It's a huge honor. Uh, we mentioned in the last episode that I was nominated for this award, but there was some pretty stiff competition. Uh, colleague Kimberly Carroll, who works with us at Animal Justice, and her partner, Matt Noble, they run the Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank, which is just an incredible group. And then Louise Jorgensen, who's an amazing photographer with the Save Movement, and she organizes cow save vigils in Toronto and just takes beautiful and heartbreaking images. Um, but I was honored with the nomination and then the award last Thursday night just before Toronto Veg Fest kicks off. So it was a, a huge honor. Although I have to say, Peter, it was it was kind of embarrassing to me personally because there was this massive like photo exhibit with all the nominees. So a bunch of photos of our work in court, the stuff that Animal Justice is doing. And, you know, it was pretty cool. But I was also like, oh, my God, that's too many pictures of me. It's awkward. You can keep playing that up all day, Camille. We both know you would have, you know, climbed over tables and killed your competition to win that award. Let's be honest about it. I have to say that um, I, I, I just warn you to watch your back because I heard Kim Carroll is like, you know, at the next Animal Justice board meeting, you know, just watch what she might slip into your drink because I think she's a little bit upset about what happened. <laughs> okay. Those are, those are some sage words. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Of course, anybody who knows Kim Carroll knows how ridiculous that is. Kim would Kim would slip it into my drink just for saying such a thing. Yeah. But uh, seriously, I bet you were. It's uh, it's quite an honor, and it's a it's a great event and uh, a very worthwhile um, award. And uh, quite seriously, uh, I can't think of anyone more deserving. I mean, you know, forget about those two other people. Who needs them, Camille? You deserve it. Uh, well, it was just a huge honor, like I said. And one really cool thing about this award is it's given out in the name of a woman named Lisa Grill. And we've discussed it before, but the very first year that this award was given out, 2011, that was actually the same night that I met James Silver and Gary Grill, which is Lisa's husband and her brother. And I ended up working with James for years after that in, in criminal law. Uh, they're two great defense lawyers. They defended Anita Crines in the pig trial, and they do just tremendous work helping out activists. So it was kind of a full circle experience for me because really meeting them was my start in, in criminal law and my very first law job. Fantastic. And um, um, I take it, uh, did you get to make any kind of an acceptance award speech? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. And I just said how great it was to be recognized by this community of people that really inspires me. So huge honor. What, and did, uh, what? No, no, no paw and order mention. I mean, come on, Camille. I we talked about paw and order in my, my talk at VegFest, Peter. You'll be happy to know that. And we had brochures on our table at VegFest, Toronto VegFest all weekend. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. And lots of people came up to me and told me they love the podcast. So, so that was really fun. 
Well, I don't believe it because I went to iTunes the other deal, Camille, and I'm convinced, I'm still convinced that we have 16 listeners because I went to iTunes and the last time someone wrote a review about the podcast, are you ready for this, Camille? Do you know when it was? When was it? June 6th, Camille. So as far as I can tell, no one has listened to any of our podcasts since June 6th. That oh, seems three months very ago. clear to me. I think that is uh, deeply pathetic. I would point out that Michael Spratt of the Docket podcast regularly annoys me and, and says, well, it's clear no one's listening to your podcast because we get reviews all the time. Ooh. So listeners, if there are any of you out there, um, what can I tell you? It's, 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 we, we need you to up your game. All right, people, go to iTunes, leave a review, preferably five stars, but really be honest with your opinion and make some comments because that makes a huge difference too. And your review yes. helps us spread the word about the work that we're doing and animal law in Canada. Yes, I don't I don't believe the, the, the star reviews are good enough because I think those are just Camille's bots who are out there, you know, every once in a while throwing a star in there just to make sure I don't quit the podcast. <sighs> I want actual written reviews because I know that Camille is too busy to do that. So if I get a written review, I will I will assume that it is genuine. Well, rest assured I have no idea how to use bots, but the reviews would be appreciated either way. So please Absolutely. go check it out. Now, Camille, I um I have a bone to pick with you. Because I hear that you've been moonlighting. You've taken up, um, you've been flirting with another podcast. Is that what's going on, Camille? Oh, the rumors have reached you, have they? Well, it's not that bad, Peter. <laughs> I was just interviewed on another podcast, the amazing Of Counsel podcast by lawyer Sean Robichaux. I've, uh, I've been admiring his podcast for a very long time. He actually launched it, Peter, like the same week that we launched Paw and Order. So, so he's our so he's our competition. Is well, that what you're telling me? Nah, you're, I mean he's not. You're, an... you're selling out to our competition. I'm cross promoting, Peter. That's how you get more <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Especially since I'm going on the docket next month, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be speaking this Ooh, way. But yes, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so Sean interviews Canadian lawyers and talks about their experiences, their paths to be getting to where they are, and and what they think about all kinds of things. And he's had just some of the most incredible guests on. And I always listen to the interviews, and he is a great interviewer, which I suppose is uh, not surprising because really interviewing someone, it's the same skills you use cross-examining and examining witnesses. But Sean is great at it. So we had a great conversation just about the founding of Animal Justice, my personal story, and how I got into this stuff. So I hope you guys all want to check it out. Just find Of Counsel. You can search for it on iTunes and uh, give it a listen and let me know what you think. But don't write them any reviews. Save the reviews for us. You can listen, but no reviews. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. And that's not all, Camille, because my God, do you ever stop? Uh, apparently, you were busy on the CBC, and I, I heard I heard some fun and games coming out of that call-in show. Oh, God. Yeah. So this actually really ruined my day. I had a terrible day after this happened. Um, it was a good interview overall. So I was on the Maritime Noon call-in show, which is uh, every, every uh, weekday at 12 p.m., on CBC in the Maritimes, there's a call-in program, and they have guests on, and they talk about different topics. And they had invited me on to talk about uh, whether animals should have standing in court to sue their abusers. And this was really motivated by, Peter, that case of Justice the Horse in the States, who's suing his abuser that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And right. overall, you know, really good calls from a lot of women initially there were people calling in and saying yes of course it's time for animals to have more rights it's ridiculous that they are still in this terrible legal situation so at first i was like oh yeah this is great and then peter the men started calling in and for whatever reason every single man caller was just awful the first was like oh but plants have feelings and i'm going to be the voice of reason and it just kind of went downhill from there. There was a farmer who said that um, I was wrong and that farmers just love their animals and care for them so very well. And there's no abuse on farms in Canada, which, of course, is not true. And then Peter, the kicker, was a guy who called in and said that he had shot his cat because his cat was peeing outside the litter box. And I was just like floored by that. Can you believe that, that someone would admit that? Uh, yes, I can admit someone would believe that because that's the uh, that's. Some people's attitudes to animals is that they're there for us to be used, and uh, when they are no longer providing a service that we enjoy, they can be disposed of. I'm sure it was humane, though, Camille. Is that what he, he, he probably pointed that out? Uh, well, the host actually asked him after he said it. The host was kind of floored, I think, and she was like, did you think that was a 
humane thing to do. And he's like, well, I didn't torture it or anything. I just shot it. Right. No torture. Just a clean shot. Clean shot. What's amazing to me, Camille, is that every time someone kills an animal, it's a clean shot to the head. That animal dies instantly. Didn't you know that? Oh, yeah. That's what they claim. That's what hunters like to say, too. But we all know that's far from true. Every time. It's clean. It's beautiful. No problems whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I was just, wow. it, it was it was shocking to me. I know there's people out there with those attitudes, but to be confronted with it so starkly is another thing. So I was like, you know, she asked me what I thought of that, the host after, and basically said that, you know, people like him are exactly the reason that animals need rights. And that's appalling. And I think most Canadians would find it appalling too. Right. Good job. Yeah. So the rest of the show was okay? You, you made it through? Yeah, yeah, I made it through. <laughs> I made it through. Um, but Good. yeah, kind of dismal. But uh, speaking of cats, another thing going on is I have a cat declawing piece out this week in a publication called The Lawyer's Daily. So it's a piece about this growing movement against cat declawing and how many veterinary associations, including Nova Scotia and British Columbia, have actually banned vets from doing that procedure completely because they recognize it's just completely cruel to cats to remove those parts of their bodies and that it's so unnecessary. Right. We've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah, we have. We have. And uh, you can expect to see some campaigns from Animal Justice on this topic. But I want to give it a shout out to summer student Crystal Russell, who co-wrote the piece with me. Great job. And good to see students really starting to succeed, too. Where where are we uh, where are we at exactly uh, with that? Where, how many? I, I realize, I mean, you know, some of the things we've talked about is that uh, the veterinary associations uh, banning it in that way doesn't make it illegal per se. Uh, but but where are we at in terms of veterinary associations in Canada? How many have banned it? Uh, so it's two now. It's British Columbia and, and Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia went first and BC followed a few months later. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty strong statement. The Canadian Veterinary Medical Association already opposes the practice. So that's a national veterinary organization, but they don't actually have any legal authority over vets. They're just more of a national group. Right. But I think there's a lot of momentum right now. And we've been in discussions with legislators who want to see that change, too. So expect some action. Very cool. And uh, Camille, it's uh, still VegFest mania for you, isn't it? As, uh, as the It's VegFest season. The season is underway. Oh, yeah. We are just getting started. So uh, Winnipeg VegFest is coming up on September 15th. And you guys can, uh, can check out colleague Anna Pippis, who's going to be speaking there. And uh, then I'm off to Halifax, Peter, the weekend after that for Halifax VegFest on uh, September 23rd. So come check out my talk. Right. I think it's at 2 p.m. 3 p.m. maybe. Right. And right. Uh, I'm also speaking at Dalhousie Law a couple times. I'm, I'm doing a lunchtime talk that's sponsored by the Animal Law Club there. And, uh, Fantastic. Yeah. It's exciting to see them being so active on campus and speaking in... You'll um, see, our, see our good friend Jody Lazar when you're there, I'm sure. That's right. I'm going to see Jody lots. And I'm speaking in her Animal Law class as well. So it should be a nice full trip. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad to hear you're so busy. You can spread the award season love all over, uh, you know, Canada. Do you have any other awards coming up, Camille? Anything <laughs> new that you've been nominated for? Not to my knowledge, Peter, but you yourself. Right, but one never knows. One never knows. One never knows. One never but knows. Peter, I understand you yourself have been getting some praise lately. Oh, I'm getting real love, Camille. Real love. Yeah. So, uh, Peter... You have for years published these incredible videos, these capsules about different law topics, especially in evidence and criminal law, that are hugely assistant, of assistance to students, I know. And, uh, you know, there was a funny exchange on Twitter last night where one law student at, uh, I believe he's at the University of Calgary? Yes, it was the University of Calgary, you know, gave me the ultimate uh, compliment, I think. Yeah, yeah. So he shared it on his <laughs> Facebook page, and he reposted a yeah. screen cap of one of his, uh, his his fellow students who commented on one of your videos and said that the sink is dank. The sink is dank. So apparently and the you only are thing now. I could say, oh, sorry. Apparently you are now known as the sink, which I think I'm going to start calling you henceforth. And dank, which is which is. Which is, you want to know the weird part? Well, there's two weird parts. First, I said, look, better than stank, right? <laughs> I mean, I had to, I'm glad it wasn't the sank is stank. That would be bad. So I guess, I don't know what dank means. I'm too uh, old for that sort of thing. I'll assume it's something reasonably good or it just rhymes with sank. The funny thing about that is if you come to my office, Camille, well, you've been to my office. You know, there's a big poster 
And the poster has me named as the cough. Oh. So like, which was a play on, I mean, it's a little older, obviously, because it was a play like on David Hasselhoff, who was the Hoff. Oh. So I, I had, I apparently had a nickname, and this is back at the University of Auckland, where I was the cough. So now I've become the sank, and I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> well, I like <laughs> one the sank. the other. I like you the like sank, because it does rhyme with Don't dang. get too attached to it. Well, I checked. Don't get too attached to it, okay. Chuck. Don't get too attached to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks, Sank. But I checked with Shannon, who edits this podcast yeah. and produces it. And Shannon is in tune with the young people lingo. And she assures me, Peter, that thank is a compliment. It means that you're awesome Great. and cool. <laughs> so get Camille working on our, our, our new our new t-shirt. It'll be paw in order. And then on the back, we can have the Sank is dank. <laughs> And then on the uh, and then and then lower down, lower down, of course, in smaller, well, smaller print, we can have with award-winning podcaster Camille Labchuk, or or just the Chuck, maybe. <laughs> yeah, with award-winning, with award, it's it's the Sank and Sank and Chuck. That's what it's gonna be. Oh, oh God. all right, okay, all right, well, new T-shirts coming up, guys. Watch for watch yeah. for them. T-shirts coming soon. Let's let's get a review or two before uh, I, I get excited about T-shirts. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, move into the news. There is the usual uh, panoply of different things going on in uh, in uh, Canada and around the world, although we're, we're a little light on around the world today, I believe, Camille. But um, in, in Canada, there has been uh, quite a bit going on with uh, the Jewish holidays uh, underway, or maybe that's not the tie-in, but uh, there's definitely been... Uh, some concerns about ritual slaughter that has been in the news. Ritual slaughter has always posed uh, some major problems uh, in respect of animal welfare. And this time it uh, emerges after a pretty shocking video uh, coming out um, of Milton, Ontario. And uh, there's been some writing about it in the Globe and Mail. Yeah, so the video appears to show a cow being hoisted up by a leg, uh, being skinned, and the cow's head's moving, and that's obviously really troubling because it indicates the cow may still be alive at that point and being skinned while he or she is alive. Um, but it's also possible that the head movements are just because the cow is being hoisted up basically by a forklift and the cow may already be dead. So veterinarians that looked at this footage that we spoke with, they felt uncomfortable concluding either way, but they thought there was definitely a possibility that the cow was alive. And uh, the video, apparently, Peter, was taken outside a temporary mosque in Milton, Ontario. And one man talks about um, how the cow is being butchered in a halal manner. So... The police, the OSPCA, have been investigating. They've indicated that they're not going to press cruelty charges, but that they're investigating other potential meat inspection and, and meat uh, violations. Hmm. Yeah, the the, co the slaughter stuff, not just kosher slaughter, of course, any type of ritual slaughter stuff is really, really complicated and a very difficult one uh, to deal with. But but um, I remember the first time I saw earthlings, um, like the worst stuff I remember seeing was the ritual slaughter. It was really tough to watch. It is. It is. And, you know, for any listeners who might be wondering what exactly is this ritual slaughter, you know, essentially in Canada, there are slaughter rules that require that an animal be stunned first if the animal's being used in meat production and being slaughtered for food, that you have to stun that animal uh, with, in the case of a cow, it's typically a captive bolt pistol to the head to render them insensible or un unconscious, and only then can their throats be slit so that they can bleed out and eventually die. So the idea is to minimize the pain and, and suffering that they experience by rendering them insensible to that pain first. But with ritual slaughter, there are religious rules in many cases against... Um, that unconsciousness. And so the idea is to slit the throat of an animal and let them bleed out without first stunning them. Yeah. And, and the, the, I, I, I must confess, I don't keep up on the science on this. I remember that, uh, there, there is controversy about the extent to which, uh, this is a, for lack of a better word, especially after our lengthy discussion that the word humane means nothing. But let's go with humane just because, like, for lack of a better word, humane practice, Camille. Have you followed this discussion? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, um, British Veterinary Association, veterinarians in Europe, and many groups domestic to Canada as well, they all oppose slaughter without prior stunning. 
And countries have banned it as well, just outright. So Denmark, Switzerland, Sweden, Slovenia, Norway, and apparently soon Belgium is considering this too. And the idea there is that animals and their interests should come before religion. But of course, that becomes a complicated discussion. And uh, yeah, very tough. Very tough, because what often happens is that you see people lining up to support banning uh, non-stun slaughter uh, for racist and anti-religious reasons rather than pro-animal reasons. And that's obviously really troubling. Mm. And of course, you get into the battle, I mean, arguably constitutional battles about uh, the religious freedoms being a an important counterpoint. And we know already that when we're dealing with the types of things that are necessary or unnecessary and tooting harms to animals, it's a bit of a balancing. And the problems that emerge when you start talking about uh, constitutional or human rights claims to religion uh, being a reason to bolster, bolster uh, the need to do this to an animal. That's right. And Jessica Scott-Reed, one of our favorite writers about animal issues does have a piece in the Globe and Mail, which we'll post in the show notes, um, arguing that ritual slaughter is inherently cruel and we should no longer allow it because our knowledge about animal sentience has grown over the years and so has our compassion Mm. for their suffering. So maybe at one point people found it acceptable to do this, but knowing what we know now, is it really still okay? Yeah, it's going to be a... a uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a difficult battle on this front. You can see the, you can see all the sides lining up, and as you point out, you can see some people supporting a ban of the sort for the wrong reasons, and uh, definitely, definitely a complex issue. I remember when I was in New Zealand, the the Lair Hen Code came out with a ban against ritual slaughter, and uh, the, let's just say the protests erupted, uh, especially because in um, you see one of the things that happens, Camille, as you probably know, is that in the countries that have banned it in Europe. Um, you can still get around the ban because they don't ban the import, right, from the other countries. So essentially the way you you get around the ban is, well, the people who want to have this type of of meat just use import to get around it. Um, In New Zealand, I remember with chickens, that wasn't possible just because of the nature of the chicken meat trade. There wasn't enough. uh, It was going to be too expensive to import it from elsewhere. And essentially essentially the religious community erupted and the government ultimately backed down. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it would be very difficult to make a lot of progress on this in Canada for that same reason. We we have pushed the federal government to introduce a, a ban on non-stun slaughter, and that fell on, on pretty deaf ears to date. So I'm, I'm not expecting a lot of progress here. But it, it's also worth repeating that no matter how slaughter is done, it is not nice. Uh, nothing humane ever happened in a slaughterhouse. And so there are degrees there. And, um, you know, I think veterinarians largely recognize that ritual slaughter is worse, but there's nothing nice about slaughtering animals for the industrial use of their bodies in the first place. Absolutely. Um, What else is going on, Camille? Well, there's a story that caught my eye from Newfoundland. Um, A cat lost his leg after he got caught in a rabbit snare, and... He went missing for three days. His family was worried about him. He finally came limping back home with wire caught around his leg. Uh, They took him to the vet, and they determined it was probably a rabbit snare that he'd gotten caught in, which um, is really heartbreaking because he ended up not really improving after medical treatment, so they made that decision to amputate this cat's leg. But frankly, Peter, he was lucky considering the the huge number of animals that die in traps and snares every year set by trappers Mm. from the fur industry. Hmm. So this was a, a fur trap, like a. I would have thought it would have been a, in a residential area. They would set traps for that purpose. Yeah, it it could be. It's hard to know exactly why they would set it, but snares and traps are used for fur. Um, in residential areas, they're used in um, non-residential areas. Like pest and, control, I'm guessing as well. No. Yeah, often for pest control possible? too. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's legal to set them in residential areas in many many cases and. Uh, One thing a lot of people have have noticed is how many companion animals die in these traps every year. And there's been a lot of activism and mobilization to try to get some municipalities to at least ban them from being set within the limits or set them back from residential areas by a certain number of meters at the very, very least. Sounds like a no-brainer. And and, and where was this? Was this in St. John's or was it in a smaller town? It was in a smaller town. I believe it was near St. Anthony, which is on the, uh, the west coast of Newfoundland. Hmm. 
So we'll be following that. Agreed. And that's a that's a little topic we've hit on a couple of times on this show. It, it's it's amazing how many of these types of issues involve municipal laws. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with municipal laws, you've got this patchwork, right, of, of different municipalities with different rules across the country and animals very easily fall through the cracks, quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. So, Peter, another issue that's that's coming up recently, and we're discussing this here in Canada, too, is that the California state legislature has just passed a bill to ban cosmetic testing on animals. So pretty huge news. It's a, obviously a very big and economically influential state to take this step. Absolutely. More people we can get to ban cosmetic testing, uh, the better, Camille. I mean, I know that our Canadian senators have been hard at work getting rid of cosmetic testing. Well, that's right, Peter. They actually passed a bill, a similar bill up here to do that back oh, in right. June. Oh, right. They did. Hooray. <laughs> Sorry, I meant to say they were working hard on uh, a bill to uh, protect cetaceans. Oh, you're wah, thinking wah. of the one that is being obstructed by some conservative oh, right, senators. That one. That's right. That's right. I get them mixed up sometimes. But they did manage to pass this bill. So I guess uh, kudos to the Senate. Uh, how does it look in the House, Camille? You're, you have quite a a good um, sense of the temperature there? Well, I'm really optimistic that it will pass through the House of Commons. There seems to be support for it and cautiously optimistic that the government will support it as well. It's one of those issues, Peter, whose time has come. You see countries around the world already lining up to do this. Many have bans in place already, the European Union, New Zealand, uh, many other places. There's a bill in the U.S. federally as well to do this. And you just see the weight of momentum on, on the side. There was a, a huge rally in June or in May in support of this bill that got 660,000 signatures from Canadians on the petition. You do not see that every day. So um, please, if you're listening and you want to see this passed, watch for ways that you can help and ways that you can get engaged once the House of Commons starts considering this bill in um, a couple of weeks when Parliament comes back from its summer break. Absolutely. And uh, what is the status in the U.S.? California, was that the first uh, state to pass one or have other states done so? Oh, good question. It's the first one to my knowledge, but I could be missing one. There's there's so much mobilization on this issue that it's actually hard to keep track of all the great jurisdictions that are acting. Right. Okay. Well, good to see. Now, of course, Camille, the the Probably the biggest news story involving animals of the past two weeks, if we were being honest, involves... Uh, I would say the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the extent to which the Trans Mountain Pipeline decision, uh, of course, for those of you, unless you've been hiding out under a rock, uh, you're aware that the Federal Court of Appeal in a very important decision uh, stopped the uh, construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It did so for a number of reasons, and one of those involved animals. That's right, Peter. And shout out to so many great colleagues in the legal community who've worked on this momentous decision. I know that people in British Columbia are thrilled because it puts a, another barrier in the way of this pipeline. And um, especially eco-justice lawyers and a friend of mine from law school, Dina Title, who worked very hard on this case. So, Peter, I know that you just had a, a great chat with a colleague of yours about the decision and its implications. Yes, I did. Uh, we went right to the source. Camille and I, for all of our uh, breadth and coverage of animal law issues, I, I is it fair to say, Camille, we are not environmental law specialists? <laughs> I sure am not, Peter. I don't know about you. I, I, I also am not. And uh, I thought, why should uh, we try and talk about a decision, even one that's as important for the orca off the coast of uh, BC as this decision is? And, uh, and, and frankly, the larger implications for all animals, uh, that all wild animals that need to be considered uh, within environmental assessments. But luckily, in my faculty is a wonderful scholar and professor named Cameron. Cameron Jeffries, and he knows all there is to know about these areas. He's uh, written about uh, Trans Mountain, and he's written about these issues at length, and we have wanted to have him on our podcast for quite some time, and today we managed to make it happen. So uh, you can listen. We are going to go to our main topic of the day, which is the Trans Mountain Pipeline with our special guest, Cameron Jeffries. Okay, here we are uh, in studio, special guest today on uh, Paw and Order, uh, my colleague at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law, Professor Cameron Jeffries. How does it feel to be here today, Cam, in the Paw and Order studio? It's great. I'm excited. Very excited to have you here. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Cameron Jeffries. He's here today to talk about some really big developments uh, involving animals, uh, especially animals in in the sea, our sea creature animals. I, I never know. Actually, ma animals, mammals, what do we... we 
they do fit under animals. I, I get the designations. I'm animals, terrible. but yeah. the, we're talking mammals. We're talking mammals, yeah. law of the sea, which is uh, Cameron's specialty. He is, in addition to being a professor here at uh, U of A, he is the author of Marine Mammal Conservation and the Law of the Sea by Oxford University Press, a very uh, impressive publication, although I should point out he's best known for a chapter that he did on sharks in another publication. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he, he is uh, an author in, in the book that uh, we put together, Canadian uh, Perspectives on Animal and Law, and we're very pleased to have had Cam involved in that. He is an expert on uh, species at risk, wildlife conservation. He's done a lot of work on shark finning, and of course on today's subject, uh, cetaceans. Thanks so much for joining us, Cameron. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for the kind intro. We are we are we are very pleased to have you on Paw and Order. We've actually tried to get you here a few times. I think this is our third attempt that we've got, but we've managed to get uh, Cam in. And in particular, we're we're really pleased uh, to get him in because, because frankly, there, there's been a lot going on, especially with orca off the course uh, of BC. We've talked about a couple of these uh, um, um, issues that have arisen in recent months on episodes of Paw and Order over the past couple of months. And in, in the last uh, week, we've had a really big development. Development. And uh, most of you uh, have probably heard about this. It's been all over the news. It, it's really, in, in a larger sense, you could say it's about oil, but uh, I think there are bigger dimensions than that. And that, of course, is the Federal Court of Appeals decision in what's called the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So, Cameron, I'd like you to tell us, like, what, what does this case have to do with, with ORCA in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Tislewa-Tooth decision from the Federal Court of Appeal uh, really addressed kind of two major issues associated with the, the proposed pipeline expansion, which had been approved by the government back uh, in 2016. So the first uh, was the duty to consult and accommodate First Nations communities along the proposed path line uh, for the pipeline. That was the first major issue. And the second, which was really kind of in my wheelhouse, was uh, the impact that the proposed pipeline was going to have uh, on the southern uh, resident killer whale population off of the west coast uh, of Canada and uh, of uh, northern Washington state. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the issue that's been percolating for a couple of years. Um, the southern resident killer whales have been listed as endangered under Canada's Species at Risk Act since 2001 and have been subject to a couple different government actions uh, as are mandated under our endangered species legislation to try and improve uh, the status of those species. Uh, but they haven't really been doing that well. And so there hasn't been a successful birth uh, in the last three years for the population. Uh, it's lost 10% of its members, uh, I think since 2016, through different mortality events. Um, and really it's trending in the wrong direction. So it's down to 75 members right now. And the issue that came before the court was whether or not the uh, regulatory body that was tasked with doing what's called an environmental assessment for the project properly considered the impacts that uh, the pipeline was going to have on those whales. And what was the findings? Yeah, so this is where it gets quite interesting. And I don't want to kind of get bogged down in some of the details, but what happened at the NEB, so the National Energy Board, which reviews uh, the environmental impacts for the pipeline, was they initially had to scope, what's called scope the um, kind of um, um, direction of their environmental assessment. What was going to be included, what wasn't going to be included. In their scoping designation, they decided to not include project-related marine shipping. Okay, so they instead said, uh, under the legislation, we don't feel that that qualifies as part of the physical project that we have to review, and so we're not going to look at it, and some of the mandatory conditions that we would have to investigate uh, had it been included in the project. So they really, they were looking mainly at the assessment of the actual pipeline and any environmental affects that would come from the physical pipeline itself. And Correct. Restricted themselves Correct. So they were mostly interested in where the pipeline originates, the physical effects along the duration of the pipeline, and then termination at uh, essentially the port facility where the shipping would uh, go from. Now this is a fairly artificial decision and I think a lot of people picked up on this uh, because 71% of the added volume that would have come through the approved expansion would end up in additional tankers. And I'm guessing that would have had an affect or at least environmental groups suggest because it, it obviously wasn't studied. So this so is, so this yeah, is where, it gets, where it gets more interesting. interesting. This is okay. where it gets more interesting. Yeah. So 
the scoping decision officially took the marine shipping outside of the purview of the formal environmental assessment. But then the NEB said, we're still going to do a review under our enabling legislation. So under the National Energy Board Act, which allows us to give a bit of an assessment to things that could be in the public interest. So they said, we're not going to do a review in accordance with the formal criteria that are required under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, but rather we're going to kind of put this into the catch-all of public interest. And so the problem with that was that they ended up looking at the impacts that the, the project was going to have on, this, on the species at risk, but they didn't go so far as that looking at all of the mitigation potentials that were available or even go so far as making a final determination as to whether or not the impacts on the orca meant that the project as a whole was likely going to have an adverse environmental effect. Okay. So that, that's quite an interesting determination mm -hmm. because in their report, they concluded that the pipeline was likely to have a, a significant adverse effect on the orca. But then in their recommendation to government, which is the final approval, they said, Essentially, because this is outside of our formal project designation, we can recommend the pipeline with the conditions that we have recommended, which we're not really addressing any of the ORCA concerns, um, with a finding that it's not likely to have any significant adverse environmental effects. Oh, wow. Interesting. So it's a flaw, right? It's almost so, like a technicality, right? Yeah. It's like it was, we see the problems, but we can't pronounce on them so we're not going to deal with right. it. But of course the government you know, jumped on that and recognized what well, we've got. No, they didn't do that. No, oh. that's what should have happened. Right. So, And that's what the court picks up on. Okay. They said there was a an error, Okay, so it was unreasonable for the government to rely on that report without correcting the deficiencies. Um, and when you read the decision, when you read the materials, which were voluminous, right, you get the sense that the NEB was worried about it but they were kind of washing their they hands. They felt they were constrained or they yeah. didn't want to deal with it. Okay. And there wasn't much um, guidance that was actually given in the judgment as to why they did that, except for saying, we don't have regulatory authority over marine shipping. So that was kind of their uh, end around for it. They said, because we don't have regulatory authority as this, you know, this body dealing with interprovincial pipelines and such, we're not going to get into the world of marine shipping. But that's quite artificial because the legislation nowhere says that you can't do an environmental assessment over something you can't regulate. Okay, so it's a pretty technical issue. Yeah. Is this, how does this uh, stand up? Is this a positive decision? I realize that the outcome is positive, but does this have anything, are there nuggets in there that are positive for species at risks like these orca? Yeah, I mean, any time we get a decision where the court is saying you can't ignore these species, you have to give it full, uh, you have to give it full weight. You can't just use our endangered species legislation or environmental assessment process is kind of a, a technical box to check off. Anytime they're taken seriously and they become a weighty consideration for the court, I think that's a positive development. And so, you know, we don't have tons of jurisprudence on our Species at Risk Act. And here the court took the time to say, yes, under the assessment that should have been done, there are extra steps that should have been taken both in the assessment and under the Species at Risk Act. So they looked at a couple of the sections uh, and said, right, you, you should have taken uh, um, action to try and investigate how you could mitigate the effects upon these animals. And, and what types of action would that be in this case? Is there a way? That's, a, that's the interesting question. Is there a way to do this? Uh, is there a way to get this pipeline done in a way that satisfies these concerns for this pod? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's really where I think the rubber is going to hit the road with concerns for this, this, this species moving forward. Um, they, it, it's essentially a perfect storm of problems for the southern J-pod, right? And, and in the environmental world, we talk about kind of cumulative effects management because it's not just one issue that, that they're threatened with. It's, uh, right, it's the, the possibility of ship strikes. It's the, um, the possibility that, or the probability that uh, acoustic degradation of their marine environment is going to make it more difficult for them to communicate. Right, to track their prey, the Chinook salmon, which are also declining, which are also something that is commercially fished. Right? It's the fact that they live in a highly contaminated marine environment. Right? There's, that's a toxic mix of, of contaminants uh, in, their, in their environment. And as marine mammals, they sequester that in their blubber. 
when they're not feeding well, when they're starving, they access those blub those blubber reserves, right? And what do you think gets assimilated then, right? It's all those toxins that come back out, makes them sick, okay? Makes them susceptible to parasites, right? They're following uh, J50 right now, the whale that's been named uh, Scarlet. Uh, she's one of the few female juveniles. Uh, and right now, um, Canada and the US are working together to try and treat uh, her for what they, they seem to think is a, a parasite load uh, and some other sicknesses. So they're out there, they, they darted her with some antibiotics. Uh, they're trying to help her in the wild and that raises a whole bunch of different questions about Absolutely. what our interventions should be. Um, you know, what lengths are we willing to go to try and protect these animals? When do we say maybe that we can't? Is that palatable? I mean, though, there's a there's a range of, of issues that emerge kind of from that 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 question. So, um, yeah, so it's it's that cumulative effects, right? And the marine shipping was so prominent because what is certain is that it's going to have a negative effect on their acoustic environment, right? If you stick the hydrophone out into the ocean, you can hear all the noise pollution in the region that they're susceptible to, and that's like you know clouding our vision right for humans I mean that's how important the echolocation and the um, the acoustic environment is for these animals so um, you know the the idea that you could mitigate it possibly but there would have to be a very significant study on what you're going to do it's probably going to mean shipping lanes okay so that you look at where the ships can and can't go there might be a seasonal restriction on when we want those ships going to and fro the port uh, we're going to have to look at uh, mitigation techniques for what the ships can put on in terms of technological barriers to, to minimize their acoustic pollution. Then you have to say, how does that added impact interact with everything else that's happening in the environment? Yeah, it sounds to me that uh, in the environmental area, this sounds familiar. I don't do a lot of environmental law, but I'm guessing that uh, the environmental area is the same as when you face uh, uh, problems in the area I deal with, which is agricultural production. And, and and I can see all these things. And when you talk about the the level and the nature of the changes that need to be made, all I can hear is the dollar signs on the other side and the challenges that and the, the, the lobbying and the pressure that's going to put, be put on to not do those things and try and react. I'm, I'm assuming that's a problem as well. And your area yeah that's a huge problem I mean um, the species at risk uh, it is it is financially constrained right and the list of species is unfortunately growing larger and larger and larger uh, that we could invest our money in but we have finite resources and we have to make decisions on where those those scarce resources are going to go I mean obviously it would be where I prioritize resources going but that's not necessarily where other taxpayers or you know, government officials are going to make make the de decisions for these sorts of budgetary uh, actions. Now, there there has been some government action which has been positive. Um, so there have been some restrictions that have been placed on the Chinook uh, fishery. There have been uh, new monitoring initiatives for the marine environment to determine the exact nature of, of the acoustic uh, degradation. And they're doing some work to try and designate new critical habitat. Uh, so to try and protect maybe where, where the animals are going. Uh, in my, my perception, and I think the groups that are working on this, they're saying it's too little too late. And so that's also one of the, the harsh realities of species at risk kind of protection is that it takes a, a moment of crisis or you know a moment where, where a species is really on the edge before we say, okay, now we need to intervene. And proper management in this area has to be proactive. It has to be precautionary. Right. I mean, a lot of those resources should probably be spent trying to stop species from coming to the brink because it is so difficult to then bring them back. And what's your view of uh, we did some we talked last week we were dealing with the uh, NFAC codes um, in, in, in the agricultural context and we talked a little bit about uh, the concept of regulatory capture and uh, you're probably familiar with some of the work. We, we quoted some work from uh, Jason McLean yeah. of University of Saskatchewan who's who's I, I read his stuff. Um, uh, recently, I, I I honestly I almost couldn't believe how strongly worded it is. Um, I don't think I've ever said anything as strongly worded about regulatory capture um, in the animal law area, though I think it it, it applies. Um, and and he he's essentially saying that that industries you know manage to preclude regulatory impact in these areas with just financial clout. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wonder if you could say a few words about, you know, the impact of industry in that sense. What's your view on it? Well, so when we're dealing with this, it's a difficult one when we're talking about the orca. So um, to bring it back to, say, the J-Pod and, and the southern residents, I mean, they're a super iconic species. 
And if we're looking at the the economic kind of interests around them, whale watching and ecotourism on the West Coast is a huge, right, right a huge initiative. So, and I think a lot of the people that are operating those those um, those sorts of economic investments in the the species want to see them there, right? Now there could be better regulations for that. I mean, it's only recently that we put in regulations that say you have to stay back 200 meters. That's that's a logical regulation that should have been in place for decades. Like people have been calling that for a long time. So that wasn't put in place. When we get into the larger, deeper pockets, like the oil and gas industry, maybe and concerns there, I'm not sure that when I when I read the decision, I see. You sense that. Yeah, I don't sense so much of the regulatory capture as I do, you know, in some ways I feel bad for the NEB because they are, it's a quagmire. Yeah, right. No the, it's the, such the, a quagmire. The positions are so broad. I, I was thinking more, you're right, I can see where regulatory capture is not going to hit straight up because everybody loves the whales. But it's yeah. like, to me, where where you, you might see that problem with regulatory capture is the indirect affect. So like yeah. the Chinook salmon, which you mentioned, yeah. that's where you're going to get into the issue because yeah. in that case, the direct link to the orca is not quite as clear. And right. there you have lots of interests who all want to access that. Yeah, there you're going to have pushback, right? Right. So uh, with the Chinook salmon, with the proposed closures, with recreational fishers that are being impacted, they're saying we want our consultation. Right. We want our we want our time before these sorts of, of impacts are made. Are we sure the government's making the right decision? So there is going to be pushback there. Mm. Um, we're also seeing, though, some voluntary consumer action along the West Coast. People are lobbying for Chinook salmon to be taken off restaurant menus. Uh, boycotting that, recognizing how important it is for the orca. So I think it's a it's a really interesting dynamic that, that's starting to play out there. But salmon fisheries, for sure. I mean, they've long been contentious in, in some of the you know interstate and and uh, problematic aspects happening along the west coast. So uh, it could play out there. For the NEB, I do feel a little bit bad because we have such a quagmire of regulatory uh, issues under our assessment processes that. You know, they obviously felt like they needed to take it on, and I'm not sure that there was any malafides or anything like that in their decisions that they made. They still looked at it under the public interest. It just didn't go far enough, and it ignored some of the mandatory requirements that I think were uh, were necessary. Do you think, I mean, I, I don't know how much you can, you can speak to this directly, but um, is there, like... Again, it sounds to me like this is the same sort of balancing, uh, the difficulties in balancing, again, that arise in the animal law sphere. And again, we spoke in a recent context uh, here, you know, the governing standard for animal law is essentially, you know, whether or not the harm that's imposed on the animals is unnecessary. And I speak about this at great length, suggesting, for example, that it's very difficult to apply that because that's effectively a moral standard. We make it look like a legal standard, but it's really a moral standard where the question, for example, is, well, do we give chickens more space if it'll cost X amount more money to do that? And I guess what I suggest is the difficulty of finding a balance when there is no objectively correct answer as to whether the balance is accurate. It's really a moral concern of how much do we wish to reduce the risk and how much do we wish to improve their lives. I guess my question to you is, how do you, is there a way to find that balance here? It's the same, it seems to me the same sort of question. Like, I guess the NEB could put in more measures mm -hmm. that might reduce the traffic, but how do we, is there a way to find the balance that allows both interest to succeed? Or perhaps the answer is no, it's, you can't build this pipeline because of the orca. Is that a realistic possibility? Yeah, I mean, um, from a rational perspective, I would like to say that you can find a balance. From a problem-solving perspective, I'd like to say you can find a balance. Now, finding a balance is probably easier when a species is threatened or moving towards an endangerment finding than it is once they're already endangered or critically endangered. Because at that point, any additional stress, right, might be enough that says, that's it. And we won't know. We might not know for 20 years, right, because these animals live a long time. They take a while to reproduce. There can be ebbs and flows, right? So, I don't know if, if we can find the balance at this exact moment without taking a, a bit of a more holistic look at what exactly is happening in their marine space, right? If we want the pipeline and they say we want to put these new mitigative measures in place, then you're also going to have to say, are we doing what's necessary beyond the pipeline project? Are we looking at other shipping interests? Are we looking at, right, are we sure that the new upgrades they're doing to the sewage uh, processes in Victoria and Vancouver are going to be sufficient enough to ensure that new contaminants aren't entering? Are we sure that the closures or the restructuring of the Chinook salmon fishery is going to be enough? So it's it's like trying to tease out one aspect of it that is important and say this is where we have to focus without kind of ignoring this whole storm that's brewing around them. 
That sounds like an ideal world where we yeah. look at the whole storm. But right. It's like, uh, generally speaking, we don't we always don't. do that. We don't. Yeah. And so, so in some ways, then, does the pipeline become kind of the the sacrificial target, mm. right? Where we can say, this is something we can take action on, and this is something that we can, we can stop now, but then all this other stuff is still happening. Mm. And so I think even if we said no to the, the pipeline, even if ultimately, say, the government decides against um, trying to you know, re-engage with the processes or whatever they're going to do, uh, I still think that emergency action is going to be needed to protect, to protect the orca. Wow. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, finish up with some good news. I know you want to talk as well about some uh, some interesting stuff that's going on in Canada regarding uh, whales and whale sanctuaries. Can yeah. You tell us about that. Yeah. So this is this is quite fascinating. So uh, a lot of my work with endangered species, I kind of appro- approach or with wildlife conservation approach from a lens of what should we be doing in the natural environment versus what should we be trying to do in kind of an artificial way uh, under the Convention for Biological Diversity. They talk about in situ conservation and ex situ conservation. So in situ is like a protected area in the ocean where animals can live in a natural environment and you try and restrict activities there. Ex situ is, well, the species is going extinct. Let's do some artificial breeding, right? Or let's try and freeze some some sperm and some eggs so that down the road we can maybe bring them back or we can keep them in captivity, that sort of stuff. So not favored, it's kind of a secondary action. In situ is kind of where this action should be. Now in Canada and the US, we have about 100 whales, uh, belugas and orcas that are currently in captivity. Um, And there really hasn't been much discussion about how we could transition those animals out of captivity and back into a natural environment. Logic suggests that if you just try and reintroduce them, they're not going to succeed, they're gonna die, right? Uh, And so there's a really cool project right now called the Whale Sanctuary Project. Um, there's a new, um, a new N- NGO that's been uh, formulated for this. It has both um, uh, scientific experts and, and animal law experts and uh, you know, uh, governance experts that are involved in this project. And they're looking to uh, find a appropriate seaside space, which would be um, uh, kind of like an uh, uh, intermediary between uh, a natural environment and an artificial environment where the animals could be housed once they come out of captivity to essentially live out their lives in a semi-natural space. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I don't want to get too bogged down in it. Yeah. I'm trying to mentally imagine, like physically what this looks like. like yeah. Are we talking nets? Like yeah, what you're is talking it? it's, a it's massive, massive, massive nets. seaside pen. Yeah, a massive, yeah, massive seaside pen. Because yeah. the whole point is to get them out of the closed space, right? Yeah, so I think, and the, like I was just- talking kilometers, correct? Well, I think, so I was looking or at less. their their website uh, yesterday, because they, they did a, a review of 100 potential sites right. in Canada and the US, and they've narrowed it down to, to two. two. One of them in Canada. Yeah, one of them on in Nova Scotia. Okay, and then the other one is off of uh, Washington State. I'm sorry, so where is it in Nova Scotia? They haven't released the exact detail okay. yet. Yeah. So, and because I think like massive tourism potential, it seems to me as right. well. Correct, which would help pay for the for the effort. Is the so idea. some tourism potential. Right. So there would be viewing platforms from of land. Course, yeah. But I think they would be quite limited. So they no, were saying. I would assume it would only be land platforms. Yeah. You wouldn't allow boats. There would be to nothing. There would be yeah, nothing out in the water. No, no. Uh, because the the welfare of the animals and trying to maintain the natural environment would right. be, would be paramount. Right. Uh, so but even land platforms would be would be good if if they're if they're close yeah like enough. the viewing yeah. platforms yeah. yeah where you can come and you can have like the telescope sure. you can imagine going to like a bird oh, sanctuary yeah. or something Absolutely. right yeah. yeah and so you're minimizing the disruption on the land I mean I think uh, so I could get the figures wrong but just the space is important and Give I think the they were saying uh, for an uh, the average cetacean in captivity has about I think it's a thousand yards and I think they're looking at thirty six thousand yards okay as the 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 early space designation. And obviously they wouldn't be taking all 100 cetaceans. Well, no, I was thinking about that too because my understanding from, you know, the lengthy time I spent watching Blackfish, (laughs) which makes me an expert in this area, it does not. But my understanding is uh, you can't just throw them all together. It's the same problem as with uh, elephants, for example, in captivity. You can't throw them all together. Right, exactly. And so you'd be looking at a um, kind of a trial to see if it worked. Uh, maybe it can house two or three that can coexist together uh, in a semi-natural space. I mean, obviously, orca and beluga, they move, right? So there's still that artificial restriction, but it would be an area that is, you know, exposed to the natural ins and flows of, of the tidal movements. And I got so many questions. Yeah, I know. Do we feed them? Are they, is there enough, there's not going to be enough no, natural ha- food they would have to be, have to be fed. Yeah, they'd have to be fed. Wow. And a lot of these animals would be coming from an environment where they were fed. Yeah, of course. Right? And so would they know how to, probably they wouldn't know how to, how to feed on their own in the, the right way. 
would we feed them live? Could we try and, right? There's yeah. different, there's some different aspects that would be quite cool. Yeah. But they've made it work for certain species, right? Okay. The sanctuary approach has worked. Yeah. Um, and it works so, for land species. Works it? for land species. Yeah. And so, you know, I see it as a really interesting way to try and move our social appreciation for these animals one step further. Absolutely. The sooner we can get them out of these places, the better. And I do, I do, uh, I do appreciate the problem. And I do appreciate the idea that while activists, you know, say things like close sea world now, it's not really a practical solution. Like where it's great. By all means, uh, captive breeding should end. We should not be replacing these, these cetaceans, in my opinion. But what do you do with the stations that are there? I mean, that's, right. that's, always the question right and then how do you link the conservation issues that are happening to the cetaceans that we're trying to preserve that are now living us artificial terrestrial life right with the ones in the wild that we also want to try and maintain and so I mean at its best maybe it becomes a way that that garners more attention for the initiatives that have to happen in the wild for these animals that can li then live out a more natural kind of existence um, and then hopefully phase out right the 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 captive uh, whale yeah, let's issue. hope yeah. i hope as soon as possible yeah wow fantastic uh, uh i really appreciate it cameron i think that was really insightful uh, quite a lot of information on, yeah. on what's going on uh, we'll have to have you back to talk about some of the more specific issues that arise uh i know there's a lot more uh talking about uh, uh things like the various bills in the senate uh, yeah. talking about things in the future marine land i have no doubt the pawn order is going to continue we want to this is one of the first times we've talked in depth about wildlife issues obviously yeah. there are so many captive animal issues yeah. that we need to deal with but uh but I think it's important that we're branching out in this area, and I, I really appreciate your time coming in to help us with it. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks okay. for being here. Heroes and Zeros. All right, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Peter, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, our heroes and zeros. <laughs> that guy who does the intro, he's so funny when he starts. Although I like the lion. Thank you, Shannon. Shannon brought the lion back last episode. I, I think I guilted her into it. Yeah, the lion's pretty sweet. It's not the same without the lion. It just, it you know. It's not as heroic. It's not as heroic no, without the lion. No, although, yeah, anyway, that's good. Heroes and zeros. Yes, heroes and zeros. Heroes and zeros. Okay, so our hero that's, this week actually. <laughs> are we actually using all that or should we cut it out? <laughs> We're using it. Okay. We're using it. Keep it all in. All right. So our hero this week is uh, unexpected in, in some sense. It's the Ottawa Police and the National Capital Commission in, um, in Ottawa here. So crazy story the other week. Uh, there was actually a bear on the loose in the Byward Market in Ottawa. So that's where I live, Peter, and the bear was found like half a block away from my backyard <laughs> wow please tell me he was like having a drink somewhere no well he was up a tree and he was sitting at one of the pubs oh jesus yeah just hanging out no he was up in a tree actually and he didn't seem to be doing anything that was concerning but here's the really wild part for me so my cat cecily a, a black bear a black bear in, a, in an urban neighborhood is concerning for both the bear and the humans around him, but especially, sorry, I don't know if it was a female or a male bear. I don't know that they've determined that or okay. really said information either. But the, so the first of all, the puzzling thing to me is how the heck this got, bear got into the Byward Market, because it's not like there's any seriously. clear wildlife corridor to access the market. So no, seriously, like where, where did the bear come from? Like didn't come over from the Gatineau. So he's got to come from the, Jesus, that's a long way to go. Like, didn't run into anybody on the way. Like, he had to have passed through, like, several major suburbs. I know. And apparently there was a bear sighting near the Gatineau Hospital earlier in the week. So it could be the same bear. But then the question is, did he take a bridge over? How did he get across? Did he well, swim? You can't get through the... There's no way. The river's got to be swollen at this time here. Uh, or I, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus. Anyway. Wow. Like, test That's as much of an interesting story as the hero is the bear for making it. No. I'm, yeah, seriously. I mean, seriously, just for making it all the way to the, the Byward Market. That's pretty incredible. Anyway. Okay. So, of course, they shot him. Correct, Camille? Well, no, they didn't shoot the bear. They shot. Well, they shot him with a tranquilizer, which is why... We're applauding them instead of giving them the zero award. So, Peter, there's just been a yeah. spate. 
Almost every time wildlife gets into an urban area, the police or whomever just come in and shoot the animal dead. Uh, they rarely make any legitimate attempt to relocate the animals. So I've written op-eds about this before. There was a bear in, in Toronto last summer who was shot dead by police who wasn't threatening anyone or doing anything wrong. There was a bear in the York region a couple years before that. And even in Ottawa, there was a moose on the highway earlier this summer who, who the police shot there too, which I hope that the flack and the blowback they got from, uh, from that incident really motivated them to do better this time so kudos to them I, I would hope so yeah i will say this though i was i was about to say until you mentioned the moose that uh you know i'll give some kudos to uh it's hard for me to give kudos by the way to edmonton we haven't mentioned that it's september 12th and it's like we're down to zero degrees here it's it's absolutely ridiculous wow but in any event yeah it's it's insanity i don't even want to talk about it i'm losing my mind it's just it's been the worst weather anyway so before that but but i will say this i'll give some kudos like edmonton like we get a moose crossing or a moose on the highway like pretty regularly on the outside skirts Edmonton and and it's very rare that you hear of a shooting they will usually literally try and divert you know they'll divert traffic they'll slow everybody up they'll put police cars on the road until the moose can be coaxed off the road so so generally speaking they don't shoot bears bears I think uh, unfortunately do too often tend to get shot that's sort of the first response oh we need to shoot right and uh, I think it's great that they were able to relocate the bear uh, although I hope with a tracking device <laughs> to know how this pair does this on a, on, if it does it again. Yeah, yeah, seriously. You know, it's, it's often, as you point out, bears and especially cougars, large cats who get shot when they're in urban areas because people think that they're dangerous, even though a lot of the time they're, they're not. But OK, Peter, I have a, a really funny um, kind of a side to the bear story. So that same sure. night that the bear was found, the people reported the bear around three in the morning. They, they Someone saw the bear and they called the authorities. And that same night, uh, my cat, Cecily, had escaped. She got out. She tries oh, to no. escape any chance she can get because she's a bad little thing and she loves being outside. And I take her out on a leash and if I'm supervising her, she'll go out on the patio with me. But she doesn't just free roam. But she got out. Um, I found her. I climbed across a fence to get her. I put her on the other side of the fence. And while I was climbing over myself, she jumped back up and took off again. So, Peter, I had to go to a bed eventually and uh, just hoped that she would come back, which I thought she would. So we left the door open. And at uh, three in the morning, I wake up and she's not back. I'm stressed out. I can't get back to sleep. And finally, I hear this little bell sound. So her little bell was ringing and she did come back in. And Peter, it was exactly around the same time that the bear was spotted. So I'm kind of wondering, like, was she out all night stalking this bear? Is that what was going on? Wow. I kind of feel wow. like she was. <laughs> well, it's it's a good thing it all ended well, Camille, because, um, you know, I heard from the, the, the Lisa Grill Foundation, and I think they would have revoked your award. Had your cat been injured in the circumstance? I know, I know. How <laughs> you bad terrible that would be? cat owner. How bad that be? Wow, that would have been awful. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, for every hero, there is of course a zero. And uh, boy, I just see the wording on this one, Camille. I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about one of your favorites. Uh, what makes the Manitoba government such a zero in this circumstance? Well, Canada Goose is opening a new manufacturing facility in Winnipeg, and the Manitoba government just gave them a million and a half dollars to do this. So right. government subsidizing a very profitable company that's undergoing a global expansion right now. They're giving them a million and a half dollars to make more of their cruel jackets that are trimmed with fur from coyotes and stuffed with down from geese. So um, I'm really upset by that, Peter. The, the, the company made a profit of over $8 million in the first quarter of 2018, and it's projecting that net revenue is going to grow by 20% next year. So there's really no need for the government to be supporting this private enterprise that, that profits off animal cruelty. Camille, I mean, you say cruelty. I've been to the Canada Goose website, and I have read about their humane standards. Oh, well, you must be convinced then. <laughs> well, as we know, I mean... You know, but 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 it is it is really interesting. I did talk about this. Like I was convinced. It's the same argument that uh, when we talked about cruelty, um, um, it was when I, I believe you weren't on that show. I talked about cruelty with uh, Sophie Gaillard, our special guest, and I was like, well, how can the Calgary Stampedes, you know, treatment of of its of its animals not be cruel? And I'm like, the same way Canada gooses cannot be cruel, uh, simply because if you make the humane word uh, manipulated under legal standards to mean just about nothing, then you can be humane. 
Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. They they use all this vague and flowery language that tries to somewhat match what the law says to make it sound as if their practices are not completely cruel to coyotes and other animals, but of course they are. And Peter, you know who else is fooled by their marketing? Who? The Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau. Oh. He, Justin Trudeau showed oh. up for the opening of this new facility and actually live streamed his presence there to Facebook. So I was just, you know, again, appalled to see that. Um, he's It's not, not the first time not he's not been happy. supporting this company. He seems to really like Canada Goose. He actually has one of the jackets himself. And um, right. a lot of the comments, though, under his Facebook feed were just regular people who were shocked that um, the government was participating in this type of industry because I think more and more people are opening their eyes to the reality of trapping and snaring coyotes. Got you. Well, very worthy and worthwhile uh, uh, zero for this month, I must say. Yeah, okay. So that about wraps it up for us, I believe. Is that correct, Camille? I think so. I think that's all for episode 17. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Um, I will uh, look forward to uh, reading the reviews from our listeners. Um, I can uh, advise right now. We, we never like to say this, but I, I will be off next episode. I have to prepare for a Supreme Court hearing. So Camille is going to be back with a special guest host. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be joined by Justin Marceau from the University of Denver who's a great colleague and has done tremendous animal law work in the state. So you folks are going to get to hear a bit more about that. Fantastic. And we will be back in about four weeks' time. And Camille, I mean, I, I can't even keep it in. Like, this is just so exciting because we are going to be live and in person. And I think that is, if I'm correct, that is the first time we are doing a full podcast together. I know, I know we did the gala little intro, but that is the first time we are doing a podcast together since episode two. Have I got that right? Yeah, that was the last time I was in Edmonton. So this is going to be a treat. This is going to be very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Camille, it's going to be great. All right. Until then. Until then. That was another episode of Paw and Order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.